shoulder and everything. So um, good morning to everyone. We're in um, Ezekiel 20 today. Um, I, I, I will just make a comment about, you know, studying this book. It's so long that uh, that's one of the things that makes it, you know, difficult to study, difficult to do a, a you know, preaching series through it. And it can get a little redundant. But but really, when you drill down on the details, there's some fresh stuff in each chapter. This uh, chapter 20 through 24 is a unit and it's the final unit that's all about judgment on Israel. And, and so after that, uh, for several chapters, he's going to turn to the other nations. Um, that's not uncommon in the prophets. Uh, you see that like in, in Amos and in some of the others, uh, Isaiah, where they uh, prophecy, not just against Israel, but other nations. So that's, that's, that's kind of coming. And then after that, he prophecies against other nations, he gets into some, um, unusual uh, material later about the future restoration of Israel, a, uh, a new temple, things, things like that. But uh, just kind of know big, big picture. Um, when you, you you would think Israel would have gotten the message, but in chapter twenty, um, he he lays it on them again. Uh, it ultimately doesn't really work in the sense that they just kind of continue in their um, unwillingness to accept. Uh, what what they're being told is going to happen because they don't they don't like the message. Now, chapter twenty is particularly long, but it's also um, uh, interesting to understand uh, God's perspective and also um, God's grace. Because uh, when you look at the history of Israel, uh, what you're going to see is that they continue continually go back to idolatry, and God has these. Uh, moments in their history when he certainly would have been uh, well justified, he would say, in uh, pouring out wrath on them and just being done with them. Uh, but he doesn't. And it's really, you know, uh, this idea that maybe God's different than New Testament's really not well well founded in Scripture. Uh, it's by the grace of God that Israel is um, kept around by God, that he continues them as a nation uh, for one to this day, but all the way up till um, till Christ. So um, anyway, when you look in this, it's it's a it's a dismal history, but it's it's being recorded for them. It makes me think of uh, you know Stephen's sermon in the Book of Acts, where he goes through their history, uh, including the the negative parts, but then brings that history forward to Christ. Ezekiel's not there yet, but he's bringing that history uh, forward to where he's he's at. Uh, so we have a time marker also that helps us. Um, we last had a time marker, I think way back in chapter 8, verse 1, as I recall. And we've got one here in chapter 20. The time marker in chapter 8, uh, and I get this from reading you know, some commentaries where people have done the calendar, but uh, it was September 17th, 592 B.C., um, which was about 14 months after the vision that opened up the book in chapter 1, so 592 B.C. In chapter 20, it's August the 14th, 591. Not a lot of time has passed. So um, while the material is, and when I say redundant, I don't, the material is very diverse, but the theme is, is the coming judgment, you, you know, and in that sense, redundant. In, in time, the prophet hasn't been preaching that long. Uh, so now we're at 591. So it's not like this has, has uh, gone on for, for decades. We're covering a very a very small period of time. But if we're in 591, 
the destruction will happen in 587 or 586, you know, it, it, over that, that, that year. Uh, so the, they're not far from the destruction. So you have people thinking this will never happen. You know, we keep hearing him talk about this. It's as if the, if the judgment doesn't come the next day after Ezekiel talks about it, they don't believe him. And, and in fact, God has, has been giving them time. He's been showing grace, but they're not far away uh, from this judgment. Now, when you, when you look at the judgment, when it happens, people say, oh, how terrible it is. And it was. But I've heard uh, lots of folks, especially when they want to show how the Old Testament God isn't the same as the new. You know, he's, he's uh, you know, just this cruel, uh, vindictive kind of God. When you look at this, he's begging them to change. He's telling them what will happen with a certainty if they don't turn around and he's pleading with them over and over. And the question becomes, I mean, how long does God have to plead with them before he lets the hammer fall uh, in order to avoid um, the, uh, the, the criticism of, of uh, people, humans that he somehow been unjust as if, you know, uh, if, if he had given them another five years, would they have changed? And, and the answer is no, because chapter 20 says, you know, this isn't a problem I've been dealing with for a decade. This is a problem I've been dealing with since I brought you out of Egypt. So uh, so the history is important, and it vindicates God and what he will allow to happen. But it will also show there's a purpose. God's not getting them back for what they've done. God is going to purify the people, and one way or another, he will remove idolatry uh, from them. And, and so that's that's the story that's, that's happening here. Uh, it's the seventh year, the 15th month, the 10th day of the month. Um, some of Israel's elders came to inquire of the Lord. Now, it, you understand that they came to, to talk to God, but they didn't come to God's house. They came to Ezekiel's house. We've seen this earlier um, in the book where they came and asked a question of, of Ezekiel. And it, it seems uh, that there's at least some recognition that God's using Ezekiel in some way, even though they may not accept his overall message. But when they come to him uh, uh, earlier in the book, we're told the question they had. Here, we're not told the question. God just says, you're not going to get the answer to the question you brought. I want to give you a history lesson instead. It likely indicates that their question is either inappropriate or or simply reflects that they haven't accepted the things God told them through Ezekiel prior to this moment. So the elders come to really to, to Ezekiel's home uh, to get a word from God through the prophet. And God says, no. So God says in verse three, son of man, speak with the elders of Israel and tell them this is what the Lord God says. Are you going are you coming to inquire of me? As I live, I will not let you inquire of me. So he's not going to give them that answer. But he is going to talk to them. Um, it's it's interesting when you get in the New Testament that people often have questions for Jesus, and especially in John's gospel. If you just note the pattern, they don't, um, there's like a, a disconnect in the dialogue. Jesus doesn't actually answer their questions. Um, they ask one question, he answers another. You'll see that with Nicodemus uh, and even to some degree with, with the lady at the at the well. But like Nicodemus comes and, and he has something to say. And, and then Jesus just kind of out of the blue says, you know, you're never going to see the kingdom unless you're born again. Um, he gives 
Nicodemus information he needs to know. Uh, God is going to give these people the message they need to know, even though it's not the, the, the question that's on their heart. And so he does. Um, now, he tells the prophet, verse 4, to more or less, he asks it as a question, will you pass judgment against them? Will you pass judgment, son of man? Um, in other words, will you stand up and and, uh, and and pass the judgment? Speak these words of, of judgment. Explain the detestable practices of their ancestors. We've seen that phrase, detestable practices, over and over. That's the idolatry and everything associated with it. The, the sacrifice of children, um, the sexual sins, all of that is bound up in that, that phrase. And um, here's the history. Uh, he says, on the day I chose Israel, verse 5, um, I swore an oath to, to the descendants of Jacob's house and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. Now, if you know your Bible history, you might think, well, he, he chose Israel in a sense when he picked Abraham uh, in Genesis as, a, as a, a person from whom the nation would come. But of course, he wasn't using that word Israel yet. It would be Jacob who is renamed Israel, and then his sons, um, you know, are, are the progenitors of the tribes. He's starting the history in Egypt uh, with him choosing the nation in a sense. Not that, you know, there was no history behind it. But as you recall, he speaks from the burning bush in Exodus 3 to Moses and says, go, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So it's this picking of the nation um, to, to bring them out of Egypt that he talks about. And so the day I chose Israel in this it's telling of history is Exodus 3. Um, I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. And that happens in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt unto a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey the most beautiful of all the lands. And I said to them, throw away each of you the abhorrent things that you prize and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord, your God. So um, think think about how the history happened. And, and I can't say this with certainty, but I think it's implied here in Ezekiel. Jacob is, is um, you know, despite his faults, he he, he honors God. But him and his family end up in Egypt by, uh, you know, a, a sequence of, of events that begins with um, his children, his sons, throwing Joseph into a pit and allowing, allowing him to be sold into slavery. But they then spend 400 years in Egypt. And the question becomes, were they there worshiping God for those 400 years? Or did they take on the Egyptian religion? Um what are your what are your thoughts about that? Can you think of, you know, are there any any indications in the scriptures you can think of that would suggest one way or the other whether during the four hundred years in Egypt they were honoring God or or had become idolaters? They uh, were worshiping. They made a golden calf out of all of their jewelry, and they were worshiping it. So it seems like they were in the Egyptian religion. Yeah, no good. Excellent. That's right. Remember, you know, when they come out of the, the Exodus, they do exercise faith. 
um, by celebrating the Passover, that first Passover, they put the blood on the on the doorpost uh, at, under Moses's leadership and Aaron's leadership, and and God, um, you know, brings that last plague that ultimately results in them being freed up. They uh, they move ahead of Pharaoh's army. They go through the Red Sea on dry land. It is an exercise of faith, and we know that because Isaiah, or uh, Hebrews eleven records it that way in in the Hall of Fame of Faith. But but then, like Moses goes up on the mountain, it's like he's gone for a couple of days, and and they fall back on uh, you know worshiping uh, an idol, uh, and and it and it what it shows is you you can take the people out of Egypt, but it may not be easy to take Egypt out of the people. Um, what about Moses's parents? Do you think Moses's parents were idolaters? You thought about that? You know, when you when you read the story of Moses's parents in the in in Exodus, especially, um, ah, I'll look at that passage, Lou. When you read the story in in Exodus of um, Moses's parents, particularly the mother. Um, she's quite extraordinary, right? She um, is is you know goes out of her way to save her son, and and it tells us there it's not merely just because he's her son. It's more than that. She senses something is, is special about this son, and um, you know she's risking death from you know from 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 Pharaoh and and whatnot. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary story. Uh, Lou and in the in the chat had mentioned Leviticus 18. I was going to turn there and look at that. That may give us a good Old Testament clue. Um, um, you know, he tells them this is it's a good reference. Leviticus 18, verse uh, two. Speak to the Israelites as Moses has to speak to them. Tell them I'm the Lord your God. That the same statement that is we were reading in in Ezekiel. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You must not follow their customs. Um, and, and, you know, they um, that's the big problem, right? I mean, if, if, if it wasn't an issue at all, um, God wouldn't necessarily need to, to tell them this. Um, the idolatry, and it's the point of, of Ezekiel 20, the idolatry comes with them out of Egypt and it never leaves um, in, in, until God is going to deal with it in the way that he's going to deal with it. And really, it's never going to totally leave uh, until until the, um, you know, the kingdom when, when Christ uh, returns. I'll, I'll read one thing from from Hebrews. It's a little bit of a rabbit, just but, but just to have the, the 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 mindset of what's going on. Um, they start off. You know, Abraham knows who God is. Isaac knows who God is. Jacob knows who God is. But something over the generations in, in Egypt gets lost, even though God is caring for them. Uh, they multiply. They prosper in a lot of ways. But they're also in bondage and, and under a terrible uh, working and living conditions in a lot of ways. And and uh, it's interesting in that that they would take on the, the religious practice of their of their taskmasters, but but they did. Um, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, um, in uh, Hebrews 11, Moses's parents are mentioned, uh, and uh, we read that um, by faith Moses, 
after he was born was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful, which is a, a whole story in itself. It's an unusual term. Um, and they didn't fear the king's edict. Uh, and by faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people. Um, the parents of, of Moses knew something was special about him. And um, it is very likely, it would seem to me, that they had at least some oral tradition. Think about what's happening in terms of the revelation of God. While Abraham knew God, uh, Abraham had no Bible. Moses would end up, um, you know, after the Exodus and, and, and once they're in the promised land, at some point, uh, he's going to put into writing the Torah, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, De Deuteronomy and Numbers, and he's going to put this into writing. His parents don't have that scripture. All they've got at best, uh, you know, there could have been some written records we don't know about, but they've got maybe an oral tradition that by the time Moses is born, they've been in bondage for 400 years. These, these traditions have been passed down. We know from the Golden Calf episode, these people were well accustomed to idolatry. And yet here's Moses' parents, who, who it seems uh, probably have a memory, a collective memory based on this oral tradition, that God was going to free them out of Egypt at some point and in particular i mean it was told to abraham you're going to be there 400 years and and they have some sense i think uh that moses may be this this leader that will lead them out of of egypt it's just some indication and and my suggestion is a simple one uh it, it is even in these dark days when egypt um in a sense has consumed the people of God, they have taken on their idolatrous practices, I think you would still find a witness. They had no scripture. They had some traditions, probably, maybe some written records, things passed down that came from Abraham and through uh, Jacob, through Joseph. Um, but everything was not lost, but it was a it was a dark time. And, and part of what God wants to do with like, you know, with the, the passage that Lou re referred to, Leviticus 18, he wants to pull them out of Egypt and pull Egypt out of them. Uh, but as this history unfolds, they they won't they won't do it. Um, verse eight, they rebelled against me and were unwilling to listen to me. So the conditions were awful in Egypt. They were working all the time. They were not getting to keep what they worked for. And he's freed them from that. And he's promised to provide for them and notwithstanding they're unwilling to listen. None of them threw away the abhorrent things that they prized. So when they left Egypt, they wanted to keep Egypt with them. They did not abandon the idols of Egypt. That strongly suggests that idolatry had become um, become the order of the day. So, and, and here's a phrase, and I, I under, underlined a lot of things in this chapter, but it's helpful because, you know, when you're studying scripture, you look for recurring phrases, and Ezekiel's full of them. Um, in this chapter, um, I am the Lord your God is the recurring phrase. And uh, here in verse uh, 8, I considered pouring out my wrath. That's another recurring phrase. This is the part about grace. You know, anytime someone says, well, the God of the Bible is, you know, there's no grace there or something like that. He's different. He just pours out wrath. That's just a lie. 
at best it's confusion. Um, God is begging them, and there's multiple times in their history when he considered pouring out wrath. The idea, you know, this is this is uh, you know a, I think a human um, anthropomorphism to help us understand. The point is, God would be fully justified in pouring out his wrath right when he brought them out of Egypt, but he didn't. And why? He said, I could have exhausted my anger uh, against them with, within the land of Egypt even, but I acted for the sake of my name, for, for his own reputation, because the end game is the whole world will glorify God. They will all recognize, everyone who's left standing will recognize that he's God. Uh, so uh, he could have poured out his wrath even while they were in Egypt in verse 8. He didn't. Verse 10, he brought them out of Egypt, led them into the wilderness. Now he's providing for them, gave them all his statutes, the stuff we saw in Leviticus um, and, and elsewhere, of course, uh, explained my ordinances. He told them what they had to do. And, and remember this, when he did that, as you read in Exodus and you get to chapter 24, um, they said yes. In other words, this was not a, a contract. We in in the modern practice of law, um, we we call it a um, uh, a. Um, now I've lost the word. I'm sorry. A um, it's gone. Uh, there's there's a word, but it's a contract you don't get to negotiate. It, it's take it or leave it. Um, you know, and, and that's how a lot of contracts are for us as consumers. Nobody negotiates their cell phone contract. They either get a phone and sign it or they don't. Um, it wasn't like that. I mean, they they uh, didn't have to say yes, and, and, and it was totally a free will. I mean, they could have just said no. Uh, but they said yes. I said, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do everything you've told us that we're to do. And, um, and uh, he says in verse 12, I gave them my Sabbaths to serve as a sign between me and me so that they would know. Here's the, the part to underline so that they would know that I am the Lord who consecrates them. Uh, always the emphasis that they would know that he's the Lord, not not as a factual statement that, you know, God's over the universe. This is a relational statement. They would they would really know uh, the, the God that consecrates sets them apart um, the Sabbath, uh, of course, is, you know, we would say it's on, on Saturday and, and, and in Jewish practice, it, it really runs evenings to, you know, evenings to days. But it's, it's the sign of uh, the covenant that God made with them in the wilderness, right? The, the Mosaic covenant kind of had a, a sign, just like the covenant with Moses did, or I'm sorry, with Abraham did. And uh, it, it was important. It was an important part of what he had for them. Uh, it was both the, the the day of rest, and there's lots of significance in that that we're not going to get all into here. Um, but there were also various feasts that had uh, extra Sabbath days. So, uh, but I think here he has in mind the, this, you know, the Friday evening, Saturday, uh, you know, Friday night, Saturday uh, Sabbath is a sign between them. Uh, you would think like this would be the easiest one to keep in a sense. Don't work. Uh, which which later uh, the Pharisees would struggle to understand what that means because they couldn't tell the difference between work and not work. Um, but but they do struggle with this and they profane it and that's what he'll he'll say. Verse thirteen: The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. We tend to connect that to um, as you move along in history and they're in the wilderness for a while. 
uh, they would eventually go into the promised land. They would send some spies in that would come back. And most of the spies, except uh, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can't take the promised land, even though God said we could. So that was, you know, that's a part of their rebellion. But it's really bigger than that. They didn't follow my statutes. They rejected my ordinances. Think about this. They're in the wilderness. Um, where are they getting their food and water and clothes for the, the decades that they're there, right? Um, God's providing all this stuff. They've agreed they'll keep his ordinances, uh, and, and they're not doing it. They completely profaned my Sabbath. How would that happen? How would you profane the Sabbath? Um, what are you, any thoughts about that? By failing to keep it. The, the Sabbath was to be set aside as a day of rest mm -hmm. so that you could concentrate on the things of God rather than on the things of the world. So they were concentrating on the things of the world. And yeah. that's why with the manna, if you gathered it on the Sabbath, then it grew worms because you were doing the things of the world, worrying about your food rather than concentrating on the Lord. That, yeah, that's you weren't supposed to work, right? You weren't yeah. supposed to work on the Sabbath. We're, weren't supposed to work, and 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 like Judd said, you know, not being you're it's a, it's a time of focus on God and not on the things of the world. And while he's not explicit, um, it, it's very likely that they did both those things, right? That that is that they worked, and and uh, you know. And and were focused on the things of the world, including probably used it as a day to, to worship idols. I mean, I think that the worst way to profane um, the the Sabbath uh, would would be to instead of having a focus on God, a time of worship, to be exactly the opposite. Whether whether it's whether it's uh, consuming your thoughts with with the things of the world or you know outright worshiping the idols. Uh, but they profaned his Sabbath. You can understand why that would be, it would be such a high offense. Of all the things in the law that you could violate, um, you know, this was the very sign of this covenant. And this covenant was was two ways. There were ordinances. And, and to be very clear, you know, uh, we know that, that the law was never designed as a means of, of saving people, uh, you know, uh, but um, and, and it serves a purpose of showing them their sinfulness. And us, you know, we try to keep it. <clears throat> but at the same time, uh, Paul would say the law is good and holy. That is, you know, the things they're told to do are righteous things. Uh, these are things that would distinguish them from the, the people in Egypt that they came out of. And it would also, of course, prohibit the idolatry, prohibit uh, sacrificing children. Um, this, this was for their own good. And God promised in return to care for them. And and uh, you know and 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 you know and provide for them. So this this was a good thing. I see a hand uh, a hand raise. Yes, this is maybe slightly off topic, but it's concerning the Sabbath. Exodus thirty one sixteen says, "So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant." So my question is, and it's something I really wonder about, too. Um, if you're a Jewish believer, a Messianic Jew, 
should does that mean that you should still be keeping the Sabbath, even though we're not under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant? It seems to me, since it says it's a perpetual covenant, that it's and what you were mentioning before, right? A con, uh, a conditional versus an unconditional covenant. I think the old covenant was a conditional covenant. If you kept it, there were blessings. If you didn't, there were curses. Whereas that seems like it's unconditional that the Sabbath, if you're a Jew, you need to always keep that even in the church age under the new covenant. Yeah. My my uh, take on that, and it's actually something I've had quite a lot of time to think about, um, is, is, is one... Um, it, it, I think it's still part of the covenant. Uh, I, I also had the same question, you know, as I first thought about it a, a long time ago, that it's, it's spoken of, and, it, and there's other parts of the law that will be speaking of, spoken of as, you know, like perpetual. Um, perpetual is, is there, there's two issues, I guess, that come up. One is the covenant will terminate. Uh, we know that in the Old Testament because there's a new a new covenant spoken of, and in fact, this chapter we're in, Ezekiel 20, ends with new covenant content. Um, so it's replaced. But but think about what really happens. That That is, um, I would say there is a sense in which they will keep the, the Sabbath perpetually, but not in the same way. So the 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 keeping the Sabbath that's that's the Saturday um is part of a covenant that terminates. However, when you read Hebrews 3 and 4, um, the author there uh, provides a fairly complex argument that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, right? A rest for the people of God. And um, uh, that's usually taught as a rest right now. We become Christians and we have our rest. Um, I think that's absolutely not what he's teaching. Um, what he is teaching is, is a rest that remains uh, even under the new covenant and the rest, the Sabbath rest, if you want to think of it that way, is not on Saturdays, it's every day. Uh, the entire experience of the kingdom with Christ at its head is the rest. And it's it's the seventh day rest of, of, of God. It, it, it's a rest that harkens back even before um, the Sabbath becoming a part of the Mosaic law, God's seventh day rest, uh, where he ceased from creative activities, right? God didn't stop working, and Jesus is very clear about that in John's gospel. He says, my father's always been working, and so have I. But um, I, I think that the 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 rest becomes um, the uh, the kingdom. And, and if, if you look in Hebrews let me let me draw one more parallel that may that may help. Um, these Old Testament things happen, uh, and they they're real history. But Paul says in a couple of places they they give us examples. They illustrate spiritual principles. It's one of the reasons that this history has been carefully recorded for us. The uh, removing the people out of Egypt, the Passover, the blood on the doorpost it was a picture of of um, really a picture of salvation or justification. It's, it's, it's totally by grace, and he's removed them from the bondage of their taskmasters, as it were, the bondage of sin. Uh, but, but what is pictured by taking the people into 
the promised land in the book of Joshua. And, uh, and I think what the author of Hebrews is arguing is that is really a picture of uh, God's people, okay, through, through the church, uh, you know, uh, but, but, but also this is going to be inclusive of, of, of Old Testament saints um, entering into the millennial kingdom. Uh, that's the, 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 you know, Sabbath rest or the rest that remains um, for the people of God. And he draws the parallel that just as, in, in essence, you had to work to get the promised land in, in Joshua. That is, they didn't just walk into the into the, the Holy Land and get in their houses. There were all those people they had to move out of there first. Um, Paul will actually, or the writer of Hebrews, I should say, will expressly say, we labor now so that we can rest later. We as Christians are laboring now to enter a permanent rest. And so I, I think in, in, in the larger picture, the new covenant ends up fulfilling uh, everything else in this permanent way. It is the new covenant that ends up being a permanent, including the rest. I hope that makes some sense. And, and I was going to read something from Hebrews if I can find it. And then uh, I, Can I ask real quick? So are we supposed we're supposed to be? keeping sabbath i i do i i think you're at liberty too but i don't think required to whether you're whether you're um um jewish or gentile um the the paul is quite explicit uh, about there being no required holy days although you're at liberty to keep them he says one man regards you know one day above another he even uses the word sabbath in there and i think it's in colossians uh so no but i but i oh. do uh, so even with ahead. the Jews, right? It says there is no Jew or Greek in Messiah. So exactly. right. So we we're all one in Christ. So the old covenant wouldn't apply to Jews who are in Messiah, right? Yep. Because that's the old covenant that was to the Israelite nation. Now in Messiah, there is no difference. They aren't treated any different than we are. Yeah, and 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 this is important, right? And the covenant terminated. So so think about and it, there's a bunch of passages we could read that. I'm not going to try to go through all of that, but it's extensively covered in in the book of Hebrews um, that the old covenant terminated. But think about it theologically. What happens at the Last Supper? Why, you know, we're, we do communion, and I think people have a lot of weird ideas about what that's really about. But Jesus says something that I think mostly gets ignored when, when we talk about the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, he says, this is the blood of what? When he has a cup of wine, it's the blood of what? New covenant. Uh, the new covenant. Yeah. What's happening the next day is old covenant ends, not because it just got wiped off. Uh, it was a a bilateral, to use modern language, a bilateral contract between God and Israel as a nation, okay? Bilateral is a word that means you've got promises and obligations going both ways. That's different than what happened with Abraham when God just knocked him out cold and, and made a blood oath that God was going to do this and that for him. That's unilateral. God's going to do it. There's nothing about what, what Abraham had to do to receive it. But with the, the the law of Moses, it comes to a head in chapter 24 of Exodus, and they say, yes, we'll do it, and it's bilateral. 
But what happened? One party to the contract, God, died, ended the covenant, but the spilling of his blood not only terminates the old, it inaugurates the new. Now, the new is a, a covenant to Israel, the nation. It is going to provide blessings to the whole world through its blessing of Israel. Um, the new covenant has not been fulfilled all today, in the, the day in which we walk, uh, because a lot of these promises to Israel haven't happened yet, but it is the covenant that is in force today, and, and that's why Jesus announces it. Paul would say elsewhere that we as Christians are ministers of the new covenant. Uh, the author of Hebrews says the old one was obsolete, and also people need to understand, and it's why it was so important for the Jewish audience to understand in Hebrews, the new covenant is so far superior, only a fool would want to walk back to the old uh, because the old was imperfect, not because in, of, of its own uh, merit, but because of the weakness of our human flesh. It would not justify us and use the words of Hebrews. It would not cleanse our conscience of sin, uh, but the new will. And so he has that focus. And, and along the way, you know, because Hebrews is such a new covenant oriented book. And it needed to be so that, that, that the, the Hebrew people, with, with all of their Old Testament understanding, could, could see what's happened. Uh, it's in the midst of that, he says, you know what? Um, there's a rest. And, and in chapter 3 and 4, there's a rest. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, uh, after he's made some of this argument, he says, therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, and he, he goes out of his way now, the rest here is is not merely the celebrating the Sabbath. It's, it's not that. It, it's, it's that they were going to go into the promised land, and that is variously called in the Old Testament their rest or their inheritance. And his argument is the promised land is not the rest um, that was promised um, in, in one of the Psalms that, that he quotes from, um, and 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 really the coming rest isn't you know just being in the promised land as it were but but to be in the kingdom uh and and this ends up being the chapter you know chapter four it's, it's a challenging chapter but you know chapter four verse eight for if joshua had given them rest the implication is he didn't god would not have spoken later about another day another day of rest therefore here it is a sabbath rest remains for god's people which people all of them. So in a sense, will the, will, the, will the Sabbath rest be permanent? Yes. But which Sabbath rest is it? A Sabbath rest remains for God's people, for the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Um, uh, let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of, of disobedience. Um, hard, hard verses, but um, we're going to labor now and enjoy the rest of Christ, R-E-S-T in the, in, in the sense, in his kingdom, uh, in, in those blessings. I hope that makes some sense. I, I think, I think Judd, it's, it's a good, it's a good rabbit uh, just, just because it helps us. And, and you know, and I know I've said a lot of, of, you know, maybe some things, some folks will disagree with, so I'll let you comment, but um it's a theological point that runs the whole scripture. I mean, it rest runs from Genesis through 
through uh, revelation in a sense, and, and it becomes, I think, an important issue to deal with to understand. So. Yeah, so I think you're saying, and I, I think that sheds some light on my thoughts that I didn't have before. So thanks for that. That if you're in Christ, if you're in Messiah, you've entered that rest in a much fuller form than that Old Testament Sabbath rest, that Jesus is really the fulfillment of what that Sabbath was supposed to represent in terms of setting aside time to think about the things of the Lord. If you're in Christ, you're really doing that full time. And as you said, that old covenant ended, right? This is the new covenant in my blood, and we're under the new covenant, although we're not, it's not fully in force yet. We're still under it. Um, so um, the verse two that you quoted, I think that's a relevant verse. One man regards one day and above another, another man regards every day alike. Let each man do as he purposes in his heart. So yeah, I think I think what you're saying, if you put all those things together, when you're in Christ, you are observing the Sabbath. You don't need a special day to do it. And I heard something too. You might find this interesting. Um, I don't know. Do you know Robbie Dean, West Houston Bible Church? I, I know I know him by reputation. I don't know if I've listened to any of his teaching. I've heard only positive things about him. Yeah, he's uh, he has a uh, connection with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And yeah. he had somebody from their ministry um, teaching um, recently, and he's a Jew. And he said, as a Jewish believer, I follow the feasts, but I do it to maintain my Jewish identity. So I think that verse, one man regards one day and above another, another regards every man every day alike. So he's saying, well, I'm regarding one day above another. I'm going to keep the Sabbath and I'm going to keep the feasts, but I'm choosing to do that to maintain my Jewish identity. I don't necessarily have to do it because I'm in Christ and I'm fulfilling all of those things just by being in Christ. That's that's an interesting observation because um, this gets lost. But when when we're developing a a, uh, a biblical worldview, when we try to move beyond just you know you do this, don't do that, we try to understand more foundational elements that that God has implanted or institu- you know instituted. Um, one of those elements is the feast, and I and they are of course they're a part of the law, a covenant. But why are they there? And 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 I think one of the critical answers to understand and then and then to make application for us, because our application doesn't have to be keep the feast. And of course, we can't really keep the feast. Uh, you can celebrate those those feasts. But, you you know, God has intentionally removed the ability for Jewish people or anyone else to keep the feast by removing the the, the, the temple and the priesthood. But. Um, it's what you said about the identity. How is it that over, you know, being scattered and dispersed throughout the world, the Jewish people have maintained an identity where most others haven't? Um, I, I don't even know. I know almost nothing. And, it's, and what I do know is, is speculation about, you know, my ancestry three or four hundred years ago. God wrote history in the Bible 
and gave these feasts, and he was very clear about passing them along to the next generation, to the next generation. And that's one thing you can say has been done, and it's done exactly that. It's helped keep their identity, uh, and it's and it's been a it's been a powerful thing. And you can you can take that and argue if you want a continuity of identity for who we are as a nation, the United States. There has to be some things that get passed along from one generation to the next. And if you don't do that, um, our identity is who we were as a nation a um, hundred or two or three hundred years ago. Uh, and I say three hundred, I'm thinking of of obviously before the um, you know before the you know formally forming the United States, but we had colonies here and people, um, the identity will get lost. Think about that. There's 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 a there's a, a you know there's there's a reason those feasts are there and, and it's such a, a beautiful way of saying it of keeping our identity and there is value and there is value in in that and um, again as I say people are at liberty to keep the feast the rest in Jesus is something you possess today but it will be fully realized in the kingdom and here's the one extra step I want to add so you you can think about this. If um, being pulled out of Egypt, God's people, uh, through the Red Sea is a picture of, of salvation, of justification, of God removing our sins from us as they were under bondage to the taskmasters, according to Romans, uh, were justified and sin no longer has dominion over us. It's a beautiful picture. Um, their wilderness wanderings. Are, are a picture of, of the Christian life and, and hitting hitting struggles, okay? And, and they needed, um, now that they were uh, believers, they needed to um, uh, manage their lives in a different way when they were in the wilderness, and they had consequences. And the consequences for that first generation was they did not get to go into the promised land, Josh, the book of Joshua, which is variously called rest. So they lost their rest, that first generation, not the second generation, because of their uh, behavior. Um, others got to enter the land under the leadership of, of Joshua, okay, and, and uh, Caleb. And uh, even as they enter the land, they had to work for it. Right. They had to go to battle in Jericho and and God brings them through all of this. He's the he's the you know, he's the power behind it. He brings down the walls of Jericho, does the part they can't do, but they do the part they're required to do. And in a sense, they're laboring, they're working so that they will finally reach a point when they can rest. They'll be in the land that flows with milk and honey. Um, the, the, the pagans will be gone. And they will enjoy their rest, and that's the picture the old the, the book of Hebrews looks back to, and what he's telling us as Christians in our Christian life, we will labor now to rest later. We we have uh, we we have the rest in Christ, but it's really fully experienced labor uh, later. And and what I'm tying this to, and this is a connection that you, you think about this. Um, entering the Holy Land, working to enter the Holy Land in Joshua so that you will get the rest. 
is a picture of the Christian who labors during this lifetime looking ahead to the kingdom. Uh, the rest becomes a very picture both of being in the kingdom and the rewards from Christ that you get at the time you go into the kingdom. Um, so I hope to just give that some thought if that makes some sense. I think that's the picture uh, Hebrews is drawing. The book of Hebrews has a heavy focus on the rewards available to the Christian. And he says, you need to know there is a rest that remains for the people of God. And um, anyway, it, it, it includes being in the kingdom and being rewarded. Uh, so let's say a few more comments here in, in, uh, in uh, Ezekiel 20, though, just to see what happens here. Um, they profaned where we started here. But I hope this is a, a helpful, you know, tying New and Old Testament together. Um, they profane the Sabbath, and and we're not told exactly how, but I think it's kind of all of the above, and and it's it's really a, a shame. But but in showing how bad they are, it shows the grace of God, and it would be a mistake to think, well, I'm glad I'm not like those people. Now, as Christians, and, and we're in a growth and everything. I'm not saying we all do these things now, but unsaved unsaved humanity in Romans 1 is described kind of like this. They're just, they're bad, and yet God uh, pours out grace. So um, verse 10, when I brought them out the land of Egypt, that's an outpouring of, of grace. Uh, verse 13, uh, they rebelled against him, as we've seen earlier. Uh, uh, so he considered, verse 13, pouring out his wrath. And I've said that's kind of a key phrase here. You see it in verse 8, see it in verse 13. So even in the wilderness, he considered pouring out his wrath. You have the golden calf incident. You have their lack of faith and they send spies in. There's all kinds of things they do. They're always complaining. But they, the idolatry is still there. But for his name's sake, verse 14, they're still around. This is why when you hear people say Israel's been replaced by the church and all those blessings to Israel are gone, um, it makes no theological sense because it was never about them or us so much as it was about, I acted for the sake of my name, my reputation, God says, my glory. I said I would turn these people into something and I'll do it. And 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 he will. Um, uh, and because and because he doesn't want his reputation to be profaned in the eyes of the nation in whose sight I had brought them out. So uh, you know, as it were, the world's watching. Uh, verse 18, uh, then I said to the children in the wilderness, do not follow the statute, um, don't follow the statutes of your father, defile yourselves with their idols or or or, or keep their uh, their ordinances. Um, you know, I'm the Lord your God, follow my statutes. Uh, the statutes of their fathers is not referring to the law of Moses in verse uh, 18. It seems to be referring to them picking up the pagan religious uh, commands, the the statutes of Egypt, as it were, that come out of their their religions. Uh, he, he says, "I'm the Lord your God." That repeated phrase, verse 19, and uh, you know, verse 20, keep my Sabbath plural, holy. So this would, I think, probably include the various feasts, because some of the days in the in the feast are are considered Sabbath, even if they don't fall on Saturday. Um, you know, but keep my Sabbaths. Uh, there'll be a sign between me and you. You know that I'm the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They didn't follow my statutes. So this is the history. 
again in verse 21, considers pouring out his wrath, but verse 22 withholds his hand for his own sake, for the name of his, uh, you know, for, for his own name or, or reputation. Uh, he says he disperses them. Uh, verse 27 notes that bringing them into Israel, bringing them into the Holy Land, didn't change their behavior. Um, verse 27, this is what the Lord God says in this way. Also, your ancestors blasphemed me and committing treacher treachery against me. When I brought them into the land that I swore to give them and they saw any high hill or leafy tree, they offered their sacrifices. Just it's like the mere sight of a high place. You got to run up and, and do your do your sinning. And and so that's the picture. Um, it's a history of continued idolatry, no matter what God does for them, no matter how much grace he provides, how much provision he provides. And it brings them up to present day. And he says, and you're still doing it. You know, he's retracing this history. Uh, but but even as you go all the way up to Ezekiel's day, you're still there. Uh, so in verse uh, 30, this is what the Lord God says. Are you defiling yourselves the way your ancestors did and, prostitute, and prostituting yourselves with their abhorrent things? Are you not still doing the same thing they did? He ends this subunit in verse 31 with, I will not let you inquire of me. Um, they've lost the right to ask the questions to Ezekiel. They only have the right to hear that this judgment's coming, to hear the history and to make a decision to change. Well, we're going to stop there, but I, this is a long chapter. I encourage you to read forward and read it with a view in mind to, um, is he getting to something that is in fact future? And I'll suggest that between verse 32 and 44, he turns to new covenant stuff. He looks far out into the future in a time when he will totally remove idolatry permanently. And, and and this is the key. It'll take the new covenant to do it, and and a lot of other things. And he's he's going to detail that. So all this negative stuff. It's important that it always seems to come back to, in the final analysis, God because of His name, not because of what they deserve or us, is going to bring a future restoration. And that's what's going to happen in the balance of the uh, of the chapter. Let me...